Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. On this week's show, we meet a bona fide overachiever, Dr. Raoul Jandiao, who is both a neuroscientist and a neurosurgeon. His new book, Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon, is not only a guide to the wonders of the body's most complex and mysterious organ, but a practical book explaining how to use it better, from boosting your memory to unleashing your creativity and protecting against Alzheimer's. He caught up with journalist and broadcaster Hannah McInnes to reveal more. Rahul, thank you so much for joining us and thank you also for your extraordinary book. I can't quite believe on reading it that I have gone through my whole life knowing so very little about something as crucially important as my own brain. Uh, I'm going to imagine now that people listening, or at least some of them, are also as ignorant as me. And sorry to those of you who aren't, but your first chapter you call an anatomy lesson like no other. Can you just explain briefly the brain, its parts, and what they do, as you articulate so succinctly in that first chapter? I'm happy to, and thank you for including me. The collective ignorance we have about our brains ourselves is not just for people who are outside of the medical field. I had that ignorance despite going through medical school. The first time I saw the human brain, I was mesmerized, but also shocked that I had all these misconceptions about it. So when I was in medical school in Los Angeles, I wanted to become a heart surgeon. And when I got to my training, it was seven or eight year training, the brain surgeons fired one of their trainees and they only took one per year. And they said, hey, do you want to switch from heart surgery to brain surgery? I said, well, I've never seen brain surgery. And uh, that morning, Uh, where we structured a way for me to be there. They made an incision from the sideburn to the other sideburn through the top of the skull behind the hairline and reflected the scalp forward and made a couple of holes with a drill and and they removed the forehead. And at that moment, I just, already I was like, I mean, I've seen open chests, I've seen open bellies, but it just felt like I was like getting into a sacred space. And I, and I took a deep breath and I was waiting to see the brain and it wasn't there. This first covered by a sheath. So it's got this sheath around it. It's called the dura mater. It looks like thin parachute material. 
that's what keeps all the fluid inside. That's what makes it a watertight aquarium. And like with a long surgical tweezer, they lifted it up off the surface of the brain underneath, a little nick with a blade, and then they unzipped it. And I was so just in awe. First, it was white. It's not gray matter. That's when it's that's when people pass away and they look at it at the brain. But the living brain is opalescent. It's like a pearl. It shimmers. And then the valleys and the ridges have these fine, bright blue and bright red vessels, fine texture like a Jackson Pollock painting. And I just thought, this is, why do I not know this after finishing? I have an MD and I don't know this. And that was sort of the first moment I thought, wow. Okay, so I will get to work with this material, the rarest marble there is. And that was my first exposure to the brain. And you say, which is astonishing, that it's it's soft. I mean, to quote your description, like a flan or a bread pudding, and you push your finger against it and your finger will stick straight in. Right. And there's a reason for that. And hopefully in this conversation, I will give you my answers to your questions always with an explanation. So uh, you can put a stitch and pull with the string on thigh muscle and heart muscle and guts. But you can't really put a stitch through the brain. It'll just slither right out. And the material is, it has integrity, but it's not tissue you can grab. You have to slide around in the valleys. And, and when you need to make a gap, it's a fine suction you, you use as sort of a, a sculpting tool. So why is it like that? And my youngest son, who's 14, and I had a conversation about it, and the idea is his, and I want to give him credit to that, is because the, 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 the brain is, should be thought of as 90 billion-ish microscopic jellyfish. They're electric, they're throbbing, they're tucked together, and they each have 10,000 tentacles or more. But those tentacles, as they come close to each other, they don't touch. The cells of the brain don't touch each other. They come very close, almost like lovers in a kiss that never actually get there. And in that tiny cleft, rather than touching to communicate... They sprayed neurotransmitters, dopamine and serotonin. So that's why the brain is a unique tissue, because although it looks whole at the microscopic level, the neurons are actually independent. And that's why if you have an instrument and if you're careless, it'll actually move through the tissue. And that's what I wanted people to understand, that this is this is a strange and heavenly tissue inside our skull. And in many ways, it's, it's exactly from your explanation, you can tell it's not for the faint hearted. A lot of the book, there's a, so many extraordinary operations you've performed over the years. And you say at the end, I think, that you want to convey the fragility of life and the wonder of what modern, modern medicine can achieve. But on the fragility of life. Perhaps you could explain one of those moments where you felt the most awe at what you were doing. Well, there, awe is an interesting word. It, uh, there were several times when I've felt awe. Uh, one is during awake brain surgery. And then the other time was where I amputated half of a girl's brain at the request of her parents and the different kinds of awe, if you will. Uh, that second one, that's when you say extraordinary, you felt disgusted you had paralyzed her brain and and you felt you just I, I think you said that was just a tortured mm -hmm. Tuesday morning yeah I was I I have been damaged by that experience but it was a good result in the end um in the end but I think th there's a tangent here that w 
the providers, the surgeons, we, we are also affected by what we do. So we'll start with that one where the lesson for that story is that the electrical storms in her brain, the electricity and the chemistry right now, we're zoomed in. We're not at the topic of flesh or neurons. We're at those junctions where electricity and, and serotonin and dopamine are sparking. Exactly where antidepressants work, right? We're really zoomed in. Uh, she was sparking storms all across her brain, but the flesh looked fine on scans and different things. And she had to be put on a breathing machine for hour, uh, for basically for months and months. When you say sparking storms across her brain, that was epilepsy. Epilepsy, right. So at the electrochemical levels now where we're having this conversation, so that allows us to understand. So we couldn't find where it was, and she was essentially under anesthesia, permanent surgery, just lying there. And the parents, we had to bring up a, a treatment that's established around the world is that the right side of the brain where these storms where the epicenter is of this earthquake the storm that we can remove the right side of the brain she would have the left side of the brain only uh, and uh, they wanted to because that would allow us to wake her up and at least she, they could communicate with her it was for a better life that they signed that document for us to do that um, she woke up instantly paralyzed on the other side left arm and left leg and um, yeah, it was uh, it was horrible. The parents were happy because it was the first time they hadn't, they hadn't seen her or talked to her for months. But what I learned from that was three years later, the mom sent a video of a girl, ended up being this girl, older, walking, running, just completely back to normal. So the brain had healed. And the way in which it healed is the lesson for everybody. It's not like liver that regrows. It's not like skin that regrows. When we took a scan of her brain, the right hemisphere, the right side of her, her world, if you will, was still gone. It's hollow. The left half that was left over repurposed its function to heal. It didn't grow new things. It didn't rewire, hardwire, different wire. Dancers became boxers. Artists became mathematicians. Those same cells took on new roles to heal. And I think that's what I wanted people to know, how the brain heals itself. And that's one of the central parts of the book. I think you have these sections, neurogyms, mm -hmm. but you want people to feel that they can have an influence over training their brain. I think you, you said neurofitness is what, what you want it to be called, but and we'll come back to other ways of doing this, but how do you enhance your, heal your brain, improve your cognitive capabilities? Well, that, you know, that's a complicated question uh, in, in the book, and I'm happy to talk about it. There are some simple, free things to do. I think uh, the elitism of of having to buy things to help yourself is is completely you know a misdirection and it's it's too prominent in where I live in, in the states. But healing the brain, uh, building a better brain, these sort of concepts come down to understanding how the brain works. So it is infinitely complex if we talk about ninety billion neurons and all those chemicals that they're spraying at each other. But it it is governed by some rules. So top down first, irrigate the flesh thinking flesh with blood. If you have clogged arteries in your heart, you'll have clogged arteries in your brain and small swaths of brain tissue will die. They're called mini strokes. So you got to keep those arteries open. Um, whether you do that with you know, exercise or diet or cholesterol drugs or whatever it is, but the arteries have to remain open. But exercise gives you another advantage. Simply walking, the brain will release its own nutritious factors. They're called BDNF. It's a trigger when you walk. 
So not only are you keeping the arteries open, you're providing the fertilizer for that ecosystem inside your skull. So that's where exercise comes in. Uh, the other thing is think about what you put in your mouth, what you eat, the building blocks uh, for your brain come from what you eat. And the diet that's been proven, there is no pill for dementia. But over many countries, thousands of studies, the MIND diet, which is essentially the Mediterranean diet, mostly plants, a little bit of fatty fish, nuts, occasional red wine. This has been shown to significantly lower the risk of dementia for people across the world. So think about what you eat, and it's delicious. You don't have to make dramatic changes. And if you have a burger or a cheesecake, the indulgence doesn't ruin us. It's the habits. Third thing I would say is the cadence of eating with respect to all the people who don't have food in this world or and the struggles that they face. Um, our brain is a hybrid vehicle. It wants to have glucose and ketones. And the way to do that is to have a 16-hour stretch without eating. You can have water. You can have coffee. And on that 16th hour, the glucose's fuel tank, which is the liver, it runs out. But we don't die. The brain doesn't die because the body will take fat and turn it into ketones as an alternate fuel source for the brain. We are hybrid vehicles. So that's the concept of skipping breakfast a couple of times a week. That you'll, You have dinner and you get, skip breakfast and you eat again at one or two switching back and forth between glucose and ketones is is yet another advantage. So the cadence of eating, what you're eating, walking briskly a few times a week, those are simple things you can do. A more complicated one is meditative breathing. It's not mindfulness, but it's a, it's a way in which your lungs can shower calming effects to your brain. Yeah, because actually you write, I think it's an entire chapter, or you write yeah. a lot uh, almost evangelical about this, something that's so simple, just breathing, deep breathing, and not in a yogic or go off and yeah. do some course Malibu, in mindfulness Malibu way. yoga pants and mats. Just the easy, basic, everyone can do it. In your car. And that and really helps improve brain function. And Well, I mean, I can do a deep dive into that topic because I think people people want an explanation of why. I mean, I mean how does that work? And so if you're willing, I'm happy yes, to talk please. about it. Yes, please. How does it work? So the brain um, sends out 12 paired nerves to your face, your eyeballs and your nose and your mouth and your tongue. And then it also sends a spinal cord that goes through your spine, your arms and legs. Another thing it does, it sends the wandering nerve, cranial nerve 10, down the side of your, behind your jaw, down the side of your throat, around your heart, around your lungs and around your guts. That's why when you're anxious, you feel butterflies in your stomach. It's referred. So that is the anatomical brain-body connection, mind-body connection. So, But we know some people, it's not always automatic. We fall asleep and our heart rate's fine and we breathe. But some deep divers, some monks, people can actually think down their heart rate. So that automatic nervous system is not completely automatic. Our frontal lobes, our thoughts can actually change the way our heart beats. Now then the question is, can that work in reverse? Are those nerves bidirectional? When you cut that nerve, are they all the fibers pointed one way? Or are there fibers pointed the other way? There are fibers pointed the other way. That's why when we have our bowels stretch or something happens in our abdomen, we feel pain and things. That's, that's the pathway. Now the question becomes, now that we've established that precedent, is can that nerve change the way we feel? 
And I would give you an example called vagal nerve stimulation. People can look it up at VNS. If you type it, it'll be there. Nothing I'm sharing is tremendously new from my lab. It's just uh, what we have known for decades that I'm, I'm putting together for you. So some kids who have electrical storms, we, we make a little cut in their neck about you know, one centimeter and we get a little metal coil. And it has a wire, and it's like a pacemaker, but not for the surface of the heart. It's for this vagus nerve right there next to your jugular vein. And when we pulse it with electricity, their seizures, their electrical storms in their brains calm down, even go away from a little bit of jolting of electricity in the neck. So we do know it works in that direction. But we're not going to do that uh, operation for people. And the way to harness that same pathway is through deep meditative breathing. So slow breath in, hold for a few seconds, and a slow breath out, a few minutes, five, ten minutes, can have the same effect. But then if I was the astute or skeptical observer, I would say, well, you haven't proved it. Well, the proof came just about a year or two ago. And here's the last thing that will prove that breathing changes the electricity in our mind. It is your built-in volume. So some of those same kids who uh, and people who need that uh, that surgery, we uh, they come into the hospital, we, we, we take off the skull, we put a grid on the surface of the brain, not a stucker on the electrode, and not an electrode on the forehead, I mean. And then we put the skull back on and we stitch up the scalp, and then they have to stay in the hospital for a few weeks to wait for the seizure or earthquake to happen so we can identify under which part of the grid it, it arose. Well, they are incredibly bored for three, for several weeks. And they have live feed of wires coming out of the back of their head on a monitor. So scientists and PhD students and others came in and they're like, hey, bored, you want to, can we hang out with you for a little bit? I mean, this is in the book. It's published. This is not, I'm putting it in story form so you can understand, but the science is there. And um, they started going through these breathing regimens, not mindfulness, because I don't know what's going on in your mind. I, I'm not even sure what's going on in my mind, right? That controlling our interior lives is difficult enough. But this is like just breathing. And uh, they came in there and they did these exercises with these patients and they measured the, the live feed of brain electricity that was hot happening. And they saw it transition from more of a frenetic brain waves to calm and focused brain waves. So that is the proof of top-down, bottom-up, now proven through some strange surgical procedures. But I think people deserve to hear that hard, tangible, graspable evidence about how breathing can calm our minds. And it's free. And it's free. (laughs) It's free and easy. Um, Another thing that you talk about a lot is languages, learning a second language. It seems to me one of the things you feel is the most important. When I was coming to do this today, I asked my family what they wanted to know from me. My mum straight away said, I'm I'm getting older, how do I stimulate my brain? And I think Mm. the answer straight back to her was, if you can, languages and also musical instruments. Yes, I like the phrase stimulate your brain. So when we were talking about tips for for, for everybody and we talked about brisk walking. You don't have to be a marathoner. That'll get you to 80%. We talked about the cadence of eating. We talked about Mediterranean diet as the material to eat. Um, We talked about deep meditative breathing. The fifth tip in my mind is that let's not forget that we are thinking flesh. I mean, it's just like the strangest thing. It's flesh, but it can think about itself even. And so if you think at whatever level you're at, you don't have to get a PhD. You just have to Try to learn new things at whatever level you're at. So what I tell people is it's not actually about being bilingual. It's the process of fumbling and trying to learn new words. 
that is stimulating your brain. You can be horrible at it. You might fail at it. But just the fact that you made the effort in your car for learning a few sentences, trying to learn a musical instrument, forcing your fingers to do something differently, taking a different route home on the tube, just, just changing things up. And I don't mean every single day because we have work to get done. We have executive things to get done. But we have all these habits for our heart. We have all these habits for our skin. We have all these habits for our digital lives. Why have we not brought in simple habits a few times a week for our brains and for our minds? And that is that is where trying to learn a language is more important than actually being bilingual. It's really interesting because obviously people often think that having habit form, ha- forming habits is is relaxing but actually you have to change things up a bit and be playful you say there's an extraordinary moment in the book to do with languages where you're operating on maria i think it is and she has to choose during the operation whether to retain Mm -hmm. her spanish which is her native language or the english that she's fluent in so that was the awake brain surgery when you asked me about awe and i talked to you about i wanted people to understand how the brain heals the other time with awe is when when we do awake brain surgery. And the reason we do that is we know language as a neighborhood, but we don't know its address. And sometimes to get to the deep parts of the brain, we have to go through that area and not leave the person injured. So we wake them up after surgery. The scalp is numb. The brain doesn't feel pain. And we talk to them. There's somebody usually there underneath the drapes talking to them, reading, singing. And somehow our mother tongue if you injure that, you lose all subsequent tongues. But if if you grew up with Spanish and you learn English at age twelve, and you have a choice, you can only you can only go through either areas that are not responsible for language. That's what we prefer. That's the goal of brain mapping. Or the patients are given the option that if if to get the tumor out, would you be willing to lose English? You'd always have Spanish. We'd never leave them without language. And those kind of decisions are not surgical. Think about the rare opportunity for me to be in a position to talk to somebody who's in that type of position in their life, how much I can learn about myself, how much I can learn about human nature. That's why surgery is amazing. It's not the hands. And she chooses, obviously, she says she wants to keep her Spanish. And from that moment on, you've spoken to each other in Spanish. She's lost her English, but she also lost the tumor. Right. And a lot of concepts about this still are undetermined because these are uh, rare examples that have been out there for 50 years. But we don't know if people are bilingual since birth or, you know, there are some there are some unanswered questions. But I'm just sharing with you things that you can find that have existed that illustrate the complexity, the infinite potential of our brains. But there are some rules, anatomy, cells, electrochemistry that we have to uh, play by. And do you think, I don't think you believe necessarily in the Malcolm Gladwell or that you quote uh, another philosopher in the book, Erickson, who says there's no such thing as innate brilliance or an innate genius in your, your innate braininess and that genius is the result of hard work and deliberate practice. I don't know. I don't know. I think we all have the genius to improve our own lives. But there are people that have more intellectual or cognitive ability. There are people who have more emotional abilities to connect with people. There are people who are better writers. There's Captain Sully that under performance landed on the Hudson River. So I don't want to be Einstein. I want to be Captain Sully. So the intelligence word or the IQ word, I just don't get that. But what I'm trying to dispel there is you are an individual. There is no way that our 8 billion brains with the way in which I have described it, 
can be put in a similar bucket or men and women put in a bucket. In fact, I can't even put, be put in the same bucket as my former self. So to come up with an equation like 10,000 hours, like on that moment, you are special. Then to be a bit blunt, I've known surgeons who have done 10,000 operations and they are still mediocre. So that I just don't, what I'm trying to do is not diminish other people's work. These are, these are prominent people. I'm not here to, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to take shots at anybody. I just want to, I want to reintroduce a complexity and a nuance for the purpose that you, you read this book and you feel this thing like, wait, I, I am, I am new every day. Which is why you talk about creativity. It's mm-hmm. something that certainly isn't exclusive to one brain or another, that everyone has the potential lurking there to be creative. And you share some tips for unleashing the creativity. Perhaps you can share some of those. And actually, I might interrupt, say, one that really fascinates me because I've interrupt myself. I've been finding lately that if you don't jump up, as you talk about in the book, uh, when you immediately wake and think you have to get straight out of bed, there's a little golden moment there mm-hmm. where ideas really do come to you. Creativity is that, and is that proven? So this one, this one again, will take a longer answer, and I'll and I'll I'll just give you some examples first. So they so they set sort of the edges of what is possible. Patients with dementia, when sometimes their frontal lobes wither at the flesh level, at the cellular level, at the electrochemical level, right? Those three different zoomed in levels. They have dramatic improvements in the ability of them to paint. This is well published. They show the pictures. What happens there? So the executive function of the frontal lobes is getting out of the way and there are hidden latent artistic abilities. Uh, microdosing in Silicon Valley is popular. People think that, that getting the frontal lobes out of the way is, might release something. Some people think that with alcohol, kids don't have fully developed frontal lobes. Uh, frontal lobes are not as active when we sleep and we are all wildly creative in our sleep. So with that sort of landscape... What I found was Thomas Edison and Salvador Dali, ancient greats, really, used that portal from the transition from being awake to asleep and then on the other side to solve their most challenging puzzles. So if you watch the movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio, and I think Tom Hardy was in there too, they'd wake them out of the dream state by falling backwards. Well, that's actually borrowed from Thomas Edison where he'd, he'd fall asleep on the back two legs of a chair and when he was falling asleep, it would startle him, and then he'd write down whatever he was thinking. I mean, that's, that's a well-established thing. Again, the portal from awake to, to falling asleep. Salvador Dali mentioned that. But again, what's the proof? What, I mean, this is that's great storytelling. It sounds like somebody researched that for a book. But these states are called hypnagogic and hypnopompic, the 15 minutes falling before you fall asleep and when you wake up. And if you clear your mind, you check your emails, you lock your doors, you're not distracted. And if you have the luxury to do that, I too will run through a tumor that needs to be dissected out of of the brain at those moments. I'll run through a scientific puzzle. And when you wake up, you take notes and you see the thoughts you have. So I would say most of the ideas I've had are bad. But when I've had a good idea, it seems to be in that process. And then we put electrodes on top of people's foreheads and we measured the electricity. And interestingly, the awake brain waves and the asleep brain waves, which never really coincide, during those moments, there seems to be an overlap. So there may be an electrochemical explanation why you're kind of dozing off and loosening your thoughts, but still awake enough to hold on to them. 
then that's my best explanation for that. It's extraordinary. And I feel like I can relate to that. That's mm-hmm. something that I've, you mentioned microdosing. Do you think that that's something that is a good idea? Taking small amounts of acid, essentially? Yeah, I don't. I, I th- it's illegal. I don't think it's a great idea. If that's what you have to resort to, then uh, maybe it's not in you. Uh, if you're trying to, especially like, I can't imagine doing it in a, you know, these, in a cubicle in Silicon Valley. <laughs> it just doesn't, yeah. I, I'm not, I don't know where I'm going with that answer, but it's just, I don't see it. I don't, you you I don't, talk a lot about, well, you, you talk about drugs, smart mm-hmm. drugs and stupid drugs. I certainly, I think I underlined and took a photo on my phone of one line and sent it to a lot of people I know. You said a few drinks can actually improve people's ability to find creative solutions to puzzles, especially increasing the chances they will have novel insights. So many of my friends who enjoy puzzles and And alcohol received that. Yay, they were delighted. So alcohol, it can improve creativity? I don't don't know. A lot of people are surprised when they're alcoholics, but I would say the tremendous amount of alcoholics that I have bumped into in the hospital, it is a dangerous, damaging thing. It should not be glorified or made to be positive. But but I wanted to share with people that that's that's one way to uh, get the frontal lobes out of the way. There is some potential explanation to that. That's not my advice. In moderation. Yeah. I mean, I think people know. Yeah, I think people know what I'm saying is that back to uh, microdosing uh, for Silicon Valley to uh, make a new app. I'm, I don't I don't get that. But again, I'm not diminishing them. I'm just giving you my perspective. Yeah. I do get in New York trials with psychedelics through mushrooms for cancer patients who are struggling with the most profound anxiety that their bodies have grown a cancer within them existential crisis and in those moments while being monitored with a doctor some of them have found durable relief so who am i to not look at that for my cancer patients and so i'm just giving the wide spectrum of things so you can again understand the both the complexity of your brain the plasticity of your brain and that you have the ability to rein in certain thoughts and feelings and to drive thoughts and feelings in a certain direction that you are uh, you are new every day in some sense when you think about the way I've described the brain. And in that sense, you, you say that sleep, and we all are starting to know that more. We've, we were lucky enough that we had Matthew Walker, the sort of sleep mm-hmm. doctor here, not that long ago. But sleep is something that is incredibly important. And we haven't spoken about just how important that is. If you don't, if you keep people from sleeping for long enough, they will die. Think about that. You can feed them. You can put them, you know, you can let them have oxygen, but lack of sleep is lethal. For a while we were thinking, we were impressed with people that say, I can get away with four hours of sleep. And now we're realizing you're just hurting yourself because sleep is not a time of rest, actually. It's an active time for the brain to be wild. Uh, Also, to really trim and prune all the stimulation it received the day before, just think about the tremendous amount of sights and sounds and things we take in through our senses, through those cranial nerves that I was mentioning earlier, can't hold on to all of that. And that's what sleep is. It's a processing, a thinking, a warehousing, an integrating of the experiences of the day before with the, the time before. And I have found through my experience with sleep deprivation and people say, what does he know about sleep? I mean, we, you, and uh, Mr. Walker's book or Dr. Walker's book was was great. He's I think he's a PhD in, in Berkeley where I went to uh, college, but I have put people on sleeping medicines. I have put people in chemical coma. 
I have done 40-hour shifts. Go in Monday morning at 4 a.m., come back Tuesday night at 7 p.m., and do it again on Thursday and work a full day. So there are a lot of surgical trainees that are the perfect cohort to understand sleep deprivation. And what we found was if you could just get like an hour or two sleep, don't do it. Yeah, You'd be more foggy if you just had that weird interrupted sleep. Mm. And that's what I do to some of my patients. We wake them up every hour and they go into a delirium, a temporary psychosis. So interrupted sleep with our phones, with the doorbells, whatever is interrupting your sleep is the first way to address insomnia and sleep issues. And I don't, I don't know all these. I, I don't understand the biology of all these tricks for sleep and the sleep aids. And I don't understand that. But I do know uh, that the Nobel Prize went to a team from a few years ago that found an ancient group of cells behind our eyes in the middle where the eye nerves cross that are in a circadian rhythm. We are, we are built from the rhythm of the Earth's revolutions, you know, the animals, plants. And so in my home, we start darkening. My kids are always irritated by that, but we start darkening and, and turning things down around six, seven o'clock. So you can have a few hours of your brain to say the sun is setting, whether it's a digital sunset. And I think that is the rhythm you want to get in uh, to optimize sleep. But as far as all the other tricks, melatonin and stuff like that, I haven't found something to, I haven't found anything to support that. And actually we removed the pineal gland and the patients have no melatonin and they sleep fine. So I, mean, I know it's a very simple example, but it's a clear example as well. So I definitely want our listeners to hear from you the instructions to do with sleep, lucid dreaming. When you wake up from inside a dream and you say it's outrageously cool and fun and with practice you can learn how to have them and how to control them. How can we learn how to wake up in those lucid dreams? I don't, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that applies broadly, but... It, again, is another concept that some people find that their dreams are steerable. Uh, that's fantastic. Some people sleepwalk. Some people take Ambien and will go out and get a burger. And so there is a wild universe in our sleep. And it's an important part of our life. And I think everybody's understanding that. But with that understanding, are we choosing the habits to protect that sacred space, which is sleep? Are we leaving the phone outside or is it on the nightstand? Are we turning the lights down? Are we putting it on night mode? Are we turning down the lights on our laptops and and uh, phones? That's that's up to you. But those would be the, the steps to have sleep hygiene, as well as all the products and things. I'm not sure about that. So I think that's really important. The effect of phones... It hasn't been proven yet, but do you think that phones and the fact that we are on them now increasingly looking at our screens, is that detrimental to the brain and to cognitive health? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I love my phone. I, I don't think so. But In fact, you see positive. You, you yeah. talk about the social interaction as something that actually is positive for older people, particularly. Well, the, right. The first question I get asked is, is it related to cancer? I mean, the, the cancer rates for brain cancer have not changed despite everybody having a phone. So I don't think it's dangerous because it has some electricity in it. I find it to be amazing. I don't want to remember people's phone numbers. Um, I can multitask and do a lot of different things. The question is, again, the digital diet, are you optimizing it? Is it controlling you or are you controlling it? And in that in that, I leave it to people to decide. But the bigger concept, is multitasking bad for us? Are we distracted? I would disagree with that. 
Capable surgeons are multitasking. We've got monitor screens, people handing us stuff. Capable executives are multitasking, running departments from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. They're juggling so many things. Capable parents got to pick up the kids. When's dinner? When? All we do is multitask. That, that, that function, that working memory, not remembering how to get home, not remembering how to tie our shoelaces, but remembering how many plates we can juggle still effectively without any of them dropping. That multitasking actually, I think, is a strength that sets us up. And my kids, I see that when they play some video games. I do limit how much they play video games, but when they play video games, they've got the main screen and every corner's got a little sub-screen, a picture-in-picture, and they're processing from five screens and sound and talking to their friends. That's not bad. But you say that social interaction that you get from Instagram or from the fact that we have... It's easier to do. That's a good thing for brain health. Especially for people who are older. So, I mean, I think if you are, um, if you go down that rabbit hole in, in adolescence and your identity and all those things through social media, that's a concept I can't elaborate on. That's not my expertise. But grandparents getting videos of their kids regularly and pictures on social media, I think everybody that I know who's in this field thinks that that's a positive thing. So again, we could be here for another hour talking about this next part, but just just before I reluctantly let you go, a huge amount of positivity comes through the book about what might happen in the future. Could you isolate perhaps one thing that you're most excited about that we can expect to see? Because you're at the forefront of lots of experimentation and trials. Perhaps you could tell listeners of the podcast one thing that's particularly exciting you. Well, I think it's at the electrical and chemical level. Although we have trials going on where we're trying to put neural stem cells in to repair damaged brain tissue, so that's at the anatomical level or the cellular. But at the electrical chemical level, uh, the question of how we can use outside of the skull in a nuanced way, how we can stimulate the brain with magnets, with electrical pulses to serve as an ally to controlling our thoughts and feelings. I think that would be a very powerful thing to have devices on our skulls synced with our phones, with cognitive training to lower the amount of medicine people need for mental health. That if that could be another addition, wow. that would be powerful. And you say, wait, that sounds really high floating. The I mean, in America, the Food and Drug Administration is looking at digital prescriptions for attention deficit and hyperdiabetes. Uh, uh, hyperactivity disorder for kids. They're looking at certain types of video games that calm them down. And the government is thinking about ensuring that. So the phone isn't going away. Technology isn't going away. Let's get ahead of it and use it in a way that it can help us get off of medicines or remind us to do some of the simple things I've mentioned in this book. And so integrated with devices in a way uh, that's better for our minds uh, rather than them being controlled. Hopefully you'll come back and tell us more about that as and when it's happening or in your next book. And reluctantly, I think that's the end. Thank you so much indeed oh, for joining mine. us. Thank you for including me. I never take it for granted that this journey has been in London. This week's podcast starred Raoul Jandial, whose book Life Lessons from a Brain Surgeon is out now. The presenter was Hannah McInnes and the editor was John Doughty. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to visit us at howtoacademy.com, where you'll find some of the world's most interesting thinkers live streaming every night of the week, including the author of some, neuroscientist David Eagleman. And as ever, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you're listening. <laughs>